talkative this morning. There was a uh, Mike's talking about wrangling horses. It's wrangling the uh, congregation to get ready for the sermon. That is my uh, my greatest joy. So um, as we will be talking about joy this morning, if you would turn to Philippians chapter one, Philippians chapter one. Sorry, verse 1, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that you will do, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Dear Lord, our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning, Lord, as we approach this important letter to the church at Philippi, Lord, this joy-filled letter pray as we walk verse by verse through this sermon series in Philippians, Lord, that we would live in the joy that has been offered to us in a relationship with you, that we would be a joy-filled church, that Country Oaks would be characterized by joy, Lord, a joy that is attractive, a joy that is noticeable, Lord, a joy that is a sign of our salvation, Lord joy that can only come from you through your spirit. God, I pray this. I pray that we learn practical steps, Lord, to even walk in that joy daily. God, I pray as we walk through this letter, Lord, that you would just bless us, God, as a church, as individuals, as members, Lord, to be with us in this time together. Amen. You may be seated. Today we're going to be continuing our sermon series through the book of Philippians. Last week we really didn't get into the letter itself. We just saw how the church was planted. We were in Acts chapter 16. This week we're going to start right from the beginning looking at this epistle. Um, And I I said this last week, Philippians is a joy-filled book. In fact, it's often called the epistle, which just means letter. The, the letter of joy or the epistle of joy, because joy is just a major theme that we see throughout every chapter in the book of Philippians. And I'm excited to start this sermon series because really joy is just so important. 
comes to the Christian walk. Joy is so important. The church should be characterized by joy. Now, I think this is true about Country Oaks. In fact, I was sitting up here trying to get your attentions as you guys were joyfully talking to each other and uh, really prove that point. I, I leave here every Sunday uh, full of joy, sometimes tired, but full of joy. But at the same time, I know there are many of you, many of you that are truly believers that struggle with being joy-filled. And I want to say this, there, there really isn't a better book than Philippians when it comes to joy. So again, I'm excited to be in this, this epistle. Uh, let's start by just looking at the greeting, and then we'll dive into the first part of this letter. If you would, look at Philippians 1, verse 1. It says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, or who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Now, Paul is the author of this uh, letter. He's writing it from prison from Rome. And he's writing it to the church at Philippi. Again, we learned last week that this church was planted by Paul during his second missionary journey when God gave Paul a vision. He was in Asia, Asia Minor, a vision to go to Macedonia. And he ended up at Philippi, this important city where a number of people were saved and a church was planted. Meaning Paul started, was there at the start of this church. And years later, he's writing a letter to this church. And once again, Paul now is arrested. He's under arrest, under house arrest, this time in Rome. He's chained to a Roman guard. Look at verse 2. It says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very typical greeting from Paul, and I want to kind of get into the letter, the meat of the uh, passage this morning. But before we move on, I just want to talk quickly why Paul wrote this epistle from prison. Uh, there's a number of spiritual and practical reasons, as we will find out walking through this letter, why Paul wrote it. For example, one was just to thank the uh, Philippian church for the financial support that they gave to Paul while he was in prison. This, this letter is actually a letter thanking the church for, for them giving Paul support. There's another reason to explain why he's sending Epaphroditus back to them. The money was sent with this man to Paul, and he was to stay there with Paul to be a servant of Paul. And Paul's explaining why he's sending him back to the church at Philippi. He's also warning the church of false teachers. We'll see that. There's concerns of unity. We'll see that in the letter. Again, a number of reasons why Paul wrote this epistle, but probably more than anything else, Paul wanted to share with this church that he loved so much that despite his circumstances, being arrested, being under house arrest, not knowing his fate, what the future holds, despite his circumstances, he was joy-filled. And he wanted to share that with his church. He knew that they were concerned over him because of the mutual love this church had for Paul and the love Paul had for this church. In fact, let me just read to you what Paul, or John MacArthur writes introducing this letter. He says this, The bond of love between Paul and the Philippian believers may, may have been stronger than any other church. And I mentioned this last week. Many theologians believe that, that this is just Paul's favorite church. We can't know that for sure, but just how he writes about them, it just seems like he absolutely loved this church. It was in large measure because of the joy that their, their love brought to him that the theme of Paul's letter is joy. The depth 
of their relationship with, with him encouraged the apostle during his imprisonment and added to his joy. He was concerned about the church's unity, their, their faithfulness, and many other spiritual, important spiritual and practical matters. But his overriding concern was that their sorrow over his afflictions would be tempered by their joy over his faithfulness to the Lord and the great reward that awaits him in heaven. Paul wanted them not to be sad, but to share in the fullest measure his deep abiding joy in Jesus Christ. Listen, Paul was a joy-filled man. If you you read this letter, it just it, it, it's obvious that Paul was a joy-filled man, even in the midst of difficulties. Even in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, he was a joy-filled man, and he wanted the Philippian church to know that joy. In fact, he wanted them to share in that joy with him. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that that right after Paul's formal greeting, what we just kind of walked through, he starts this epistle with joy and gratitude. Verses 3 through 8 is all about Paul's joy, gratitude, and love for the believers within that church in Philippi. In fact, in these few verses, we, we really get to see a, a glimpse of Paul's heart. It kind of just opens up his heart, and, and we get to see what's inside of his heart. And, and, and this is what I'm excited about. In our passage, Paul really gives us three practical ways, in, in an example, three practical ways to live a joy-filled life. Now, don't get scared. It's not like three practical steps to a, a joy-filled life, but but this, this, this beginning part through his example, it, it, it's just so practical, and I'm excited about this. Let, let me be clear. Joy ultimately comes from our relationship with the Lord. God created us, Adam and Eve, and every human being ever since then to find joy in his glory. Our ultimate satisfaction will be found in nothing else besides God and his glory. If you're seeking joy this morning, seeking satisfaction in something— it will not satisfy unless it's a relationship with the Lord. Our ultimate joy comes from our relationship with the Lord. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a sign of salvation. God's people are marked by joy. But even as a believer, there are things you can do to live in that joy and or suppress that joy. Therefore, from Paul's example in Philippians 1, 3 through 6, we see three practical ways to live in the joy offered to you as a believer. Three practical ways to live in the joy offered to you as a believer. First, Paul's joy in thinking about the past. Second, Paul's joy in his partnership in the present. And third, Paul's joy in his confidence of the future. We see past, present, and future in these three verses. We're only going to have time to go over two. I told you we're going to go slower through this book. Um, we'll cover the third point next week. So this is a two-point sermon, I guess. Um, let's start with Paul's joy-filled perspective of the past. If you would, look at verse 3. Verse 3 says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Did you hear a repeated word in there? I kind of highlighted it as I read it. Word all. All, always, every, all. 
within these two short verses, uh, Paul uses this one word, all, four times, different variations of the same word, all. It's the same word in Greek. All my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, you all making my prayer with joy. This is almost hyperbolic language, an exaggeration. He's speaking in superlatives or extremes here. Always, all, always in every prayer of mine. What's interesting about this is I've meditated on Philippians. I've read through it so many times and and just kind of was studying this week and thinking about it. What's interesting is is that in counseling as a pastor in seminary, they really trained us, seminary, um, in counseling to listen for words like always, never, every. Because these words are usually not the truth. They're not true. They're exaggerations. They're things that people are telling themselves over and over and over again. And typically they're connected to some kind of idol. Some kind of kind of emotional attachment to what they're saying. And it exposes by it's exposed by these hyperbolic language or emotion, emotional language, this extreme language. Let me just give you an example uh, uh, just between a husband and wife. And maybe you say this, maybe you've said it this morning. Uh, I don't know. Let me give you a couple examples. My wife is always late. My husband is never home on time. My wife is always on her phone. Now, is that true? No. Those are hyperbolic and emotional language. My husband never talks to me anymore. Or maybe even worse, my wife or my husband will never change. As a counselor, I'm trained to listen for these words. When someone is using extreme hyperbolic statements like this, there's usually a heart issue behind it. There's usually a heart issue behind it. So when I was meditating on Philippians 1, 3 through 4, Paul is using this type of language, all, always, every really just got me thinking. It's what I've been trained to look for, but it's completely opposite. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 3 again. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Really, Paul? You only have good memories of this church? Joy-filled memories? I hope it's apparent that I absolutely love Country Oaks. But there's been hard times in the past, right? As a leader. Paul was a leader of this church. There was no painful memories. There's there's no hurtful memories. Only thankful memories. Yes. Here's what Paul is doing. He's choosing to remember the best. He's focusing on the good. He's putting aside all and any painful memories, and he's choosing to dwell on the good. Now, I want to be clear. This doesn't mean he's, he's ignoring or denying the weaknesses or faults of this church. In fact, he's going to address some of the faults of the church in the letter. He's not ignorant. He's not lying to himself. This church wasn't perfect. But day to day, as he thinks and, and, and reflects and remembers the church at Philippi, He is purposefully 
choosing, and that's important, he's, he's choosing to dwell on the good memories, not the bad. You know what that is? Love. Love. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. He says this, love is patient, kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And listen to this, verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things. You know what that means? Love believes the best in people. It believes the best in people. It focuses on the good, the good memories, the best in people, not the worst. Love believes all things, it, it hopes all things. It doesn't just believe the best in people, it hopes the best in people. That's, therefore, love would never say, you're, you will never change. Because it hopes the best in people. It believes the best, it hopes the best, and when you can't believe the best anymore or hope the best, it, it endures all things. In Philippians 1, verse 3, Paul is just living this out. Again, Paul lived out the truths he preached and wrote about and taught. He's living this out. He's given us an example of love. He, he is using these extreme statements, these hyperbolic statements, and they're not negative. They're positive. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine, you all making my prayer with joy. Paul is choosing to dwell on the good. And because of this, he is joy-filled. He is joy-filled. I just to think about it for a second. If you just dwell on the negative about people, past hurts, past failures, past offenses, is that going to produce a joy in your spirit? No. You know this, right? I mean, this is not rocket scientists. produce bitterness. And listen, bitterness will rob you of joy. Let me ask a question. You just think about it for a second. You can answer this in your head. At the end of Joseph's life in Genesis 50, do you think he was a joy-filled person? You know, this week I've just kind of was walking around and asking random people uh, this question without any context. I, I just asked, do you think Joseph was joy-filled? People stopped and thought about it and kind of took them a second. And yet every single person answered, yeah, I think he was. Why do we think that? The text doesn't necessarily say specifically he was a joy-filled man. Yet we automatically think Joseph was a joy-filled person. Here's my guess. Because he didn't hold on to a grudge. Let me just read Genesis 50, verse 18, it says this. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Now, at this point in the story, uh, Joseph's dad, the brother's dad, um, has died. And so the brothers think Joseph is going to take vengeance for the, the evil that they have done to him. And I want just to remind you, they threw him into prison. Slavery. I mean, this, this, it was a horrible sin against their brother. And his brother at this point now is at the second 
They're the, the second highest, most powerful position in the land. In fact, probably in the world at that point. And could have done anything he wanted to to his brothers. But, verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but, but God meant it toward good to bring it about that, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Listen, we, we intuitively know that a person who is unwilling to hold on to a grudge, a person who is unwilling to be critical, bitter, and or judgmental. A person who is unwilling to be angry over past offenses. We, we just intuitively know that this kind of person is joy-filled. Is joy-filled. I, I really think this is so important that, that I want to just rest here and, and just stay here for a second. So let me give you one more example. If you would, turn to Luke 15. Luke 15. Luke 15, verse 11. This is the famous story, the parable of the prodigal son. Even if you're not super familiar with scripture, most everyone knows this story. There's three main characters in this story. There's a father, an older son, and a younger son. There's two sons, a father and two sons. The younger son demands his inheritance early before his father's death. And in essence saying, I wish you were dead. Can't you just die so I can get my inheritance? I, I care more about the money that I will get after your death than you. Can you just give it to me early? Just a sinful evil. And you can imagine in an honor-shame society just how dishonoring this was for a son to say that to his father. But you know what's crazy about this story? I, I've talked about parables before, and I, I said that there's always this point where it, it's just unbelievable. The, the unbelievable part in the story of the prodigal son is that the father unexpectedly says, okay, okay, you want, you want your inheritance early? Here it is. He, he sells one third of his estate, a massive chunk of the father's wealth, right? In that culture, it would just been, it's been unheard of. This, this sin was unthinkable, horrific. The son completely dishonors the father, and the father just gives him all this wealth. And we know how the story goes. The son goes, he spends all the money quickly on just reckless living, hedonistic living. He ends up with nothing, poor, and living in a pig pen. If the story ended there, we would just say, yeah, that's what he deserved. But he comes to his senses, this younger brother, and look at verse 17. It says this, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread that I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He's practicing this speech that he's going to say to his father. And verse 20, as he arose and came to his father, now just listen to this. But while he was still a long way off, father saw him 
Meaning his father was sitting there looking, waiting for him to come back. His father saw him and felt not anger, not bitterness, not judgmental or saying, look who's coming back. He felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can even finish the speech that he was practicing on his way back to his father, look at verse 22, it says this, But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the, the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father just held absolutely no grudge. He just forgave the son. Just loved him. Now let me ask a question. Do you think the father is a joyful man? Yeah, undoubtedly. It says he's celebrating. In fact, that's a, that's a major key to understanding this parable. Jesus is making it clear that this was a joyful man. Let me, let me show you what I mean. This, this parable is connected to two other parables. It's three parables together that's really teaching kind of the same thing. Uh, the first parable is the parable of the lost sheep, where a shepherd leaves the 99, goes after the one. We know this parable. Look at Luke 15, verse 5. It says this. And when he, the shepherd, when he found it, this is the lost sheep, he goes out, finds the sheep. Verse 5, it says this. He lays it on his shoulders. He puts the sheep on his shoulders. And what, what does it say after that? Rejoicing. He doesn't beat the sheep. He doesn't get mad at the sheep. Wrecking his whole day as he went out looking for the sheep. He rejoices. He's full of joy. In fact, verse 6 says this, And when he came home, he calls together all his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. A joy-filled man, a joy-filled shepherd. The next parable, again, these three parables are connected. It's the parable of the lost coin where a woman loses a coin and then she finds it. Look at verse 9. This is Luke 15, verse 9. And, and when she, she, she has found it, what does she do? She calls together her friends and, and neighbors saying, listen to this, rejoice with me. In other words, let's celebrate. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And finally, there's this third parable, the parable of the lost son. Look at verse 32, Luke 15, verse 32. It says this, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad or joyful. For this, this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. Here's the lesson. Those who are unwilling to, to hold a grudge, unwilling to, to hold on to a grudge, those who, who are willing to forgive, those who, who only dwell on the good in a person, even if they have sinned against you, those type of people are typically joyful. But there's a, another side to this coin, right? Those who refuse to let things go. Those who dwell on past hurts. 
those who are, are critical and judgmental, those that, that don't think the best in people but only dwell on the worst, they're usually the opposite of joy-filled. Remember, there's three characters, the father, the younger brother, and the older brother. Look at verse 25. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. What should happen here is the older brother should run in there and rejoice with the father. But look at what happens. Verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look. You talk about being rude or dishonoring. He doesn't even address him as father. He just says, look. As many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might uh, celebrate with my friends. Remember that word I said to look out for? I never disobeyed your command? That's not true. I have kids. <laughs> but when the son of yours came, who was uh, devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now let me ask a question. Do you think this brother was joyful? No, in fact, this is a parable about the Pharisees. So we know the context. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and they're the older brother. The Pharisees were so full of bitterness and jealousy and anger that they eventually kill Jesus. They weren't joy-filled. His brother wasn't joy-filled. He was full of bitterness and anger. But here's the lesson. If you're struggling with being a joy-filled person, and I started the sermon and said, hey, this sermon, or this, this whole series through Philippians, if you're struggling with being joy-filled, and you say, hey, that's me. If you struggle being a joy-filled person, maybe, and I would ask you to examine your heart, but maybe it's because you are holding on to things that you just need to let go. Things that you just need to let go. Proverbs 19.11 says this, good sense makes one slow to anger, it is his glory to overlook an offense. There is so much wisdom in that one verse. People that, that hold on to past offenses that dwell on them, you think about past hurts and how they've been hurt by someone in the church, by a church, by a family member, by a spouse. They think about them, they, they talk about them with other people. Usually they are being tormented by them. They are letting past offenses rob them of their joy. Listen, Paul was a joy-filled man in, in very tough circumstances. There's all types of people that let Paul down. There's all types of opportunities for Paul to be bitter towards people. 
joy filled. He was joy filled. And one of the reasons he was so joy filled was simply, this is just so simple. He thought the best of it. He chose, and that's important. If you just let your brain go on default, you're going to think the worst. He chose. He, he purposefully made an effort like Joseph, like the prodigal father. He, he took negative thoughts captive of other people, and he took them out of his brain. And he, he chose to remember the good. I, I've said this a number of times. People are going to think I'm crazy when they see me in my office. Uh, sometimes I sit there, and I do this by myself. But I, I'm getting to the point where I don't care. I'll do it in front of people. Just what happens when you get older, right? Uh, I, I, I have these negative thoughts that come in my head. When they come in and I, and I know I shouldn't be having these thoughts, I'll, I'll literally just grab my hands and go like this and act like I'm throwing it out. And people are going to be like, like why? What are you doing? I just don't care. I, I want to be joy-filled. I want to be joy-filled. I, I don't want past hurts that, that other people have done to me or past offenses sins even rob me of my joy I'm going to think the best of these people and when those negative thoughts come up because I'm a sinner and the flesh is still a part of me I want to take those thoughts captive and not dwell on them just get them out therefore I believe Paul can say with all sincerity because he did this I thank my God in all every single one of them all my remembrance of you want to be joy-filled, here's just a simple practical first step. Believe the best in people. Don't hold on to a grudge. Forgive. Just let past offenses go. Sometimes it's just someone you can't, you're in contact with. Just let it go. Don't dwell on it. Choose to remember only the good in people. Paul was joy-filled because he had a joy-filled perspective of but it wasn't just the past. It wasn't just a, a perspective of the past that, that promoted the joy that Paul had. In verses 3 through 6, we see past, present, and future. And I think this is intentional. He, he was also joy-filled because of his partnership in the present. So the second point this morning is Paul's joy in his partnership in the present. Again, look at verse 4. It says this. Philippians 1, verse 4. Always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Listen, Paul was joy-filled because of his partnership in the gospel with the Philippian church from the first day until the present, until now, he said. He was partners in the gospel. The Philippian church partnered with Paul. They, they prayed with Paul and for Paul. They worshiped with Paul. They evangelized the city with Paul. They, they even gave money to Paul when he was on his missionary journey. And this partnership started from day one, he says, from the first day until now. Remember what we learned last week, the first convert in Philippi was Lydia, a wealthy business lady, a seller of purple goods. And what did she do right after salvation? Let me just read it. Acts 15, 16, 15 says this, And after she was baptized, and her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, if, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, 
and she prevails upon them. So she's right after salvation. She shows right hospitality. And Timothy, Luke, Silas, and Paul. She she gives them gives them a place to stay, and as they continue to proclaim the good news in the city of Philippi, she partners with them. Remember the Philippian jailer. What did he do after Paul and Silas were beat badly? their wounds from day one there is a partnership a, a fellowship in fact look at verse five again it says this because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now paul joy filled when he thought about the philippian church because he had a partnership with them in the gospel now the word translated partnership is very interesting in the greek it, it's a word that many of you know it's koinonia koinonia it's usually translated fellowship. In other words, Paul found joy in his fellowship with the Philippian church, and not just any fellowship. It's not what I think we think of fellowship, having like coffee with someone or eating a meal with someone, or, or maybe we think of fellowship as just saying hi between services, which is great. You know, I can't get you guys to sit down, so do that well. Again, it's not just any fellowship, though, but this is a, a fellowship in the gospel. James Boyce writes this about fellowship. He says this, the, the word fellowship has been so watered down in contemporary speech that it conveys only a faint suggestion of what it meant in earlier times. When we speak of fellowship today, we genuinely mean more of a, a comradeship or just sharing of good times together. But fellowship originally meant much more than a sharing of something. It meant sharing in something, participating in something greater than the people involved and more lasting than activities of, of any given moment. The fellowship Paul is talking about is fellowship in the gospel. And the fellowship brought Paul great joy. Again, verse 4 says, Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy, because of your fellowship, partnership in the gospel. If you're uh, experiencing a lack of joy, maybe it's not the past that you're struggling with. Maybe, maybe it's the present. Where are you spending your day-to-day -day time? Are you committed to the fellowship in the gospel? Or are you more committed to your hobbies? Sports? Leisure, work. There is a joy that comes with fellowship, and not, not just a shallow fellowship, but a fellowship in something. A fellowship in something bigger than you, a fellowship in the gospel. I've mentioned a number of times that, that I played college basketball, and lately, for, for whatever reason, I found myself just kind of missing something about playing sports. Maybe it's just I'm getting older and I'm realizing it, but we've watched a, a couple documentaries um, recently on, on sports players and teams, and it's just reminded me there's just something about being a part of a team. Practicing together, working out together, running plays for each other, sacrificing for and with each other. In college, there was just a fellowship that I had with my teammates fellowship that really brought us close to each other. I, I grew up pretty much my whole life here in Tehachapi. It, 
I went and played basketball, and, and the first place I played, I was I was the only kid from a small town. Everyone else was from the inner city, New York, New Jersey, um, Augusta, Compton, and here's this kid from Bangor, right? But there was this closeness that, that we built over the season. In fact, I feel like I could call up many of the, those same players I haven't talked to in years to this day. We just pick up right where we left off. Here's the point. We weren't just sharing something. We were fellowshipping in something and, and a common goal of winning the games and, and the struggle of trying to grow and get better together during practice. And, and, and for how joy-filled that fellowship was over basketball, it's nothing compared to the fellowship we have here together. Absolutely nothing. There is a joy in partnering with other Christians, fellowshipping in something, something that is so much bigger than us. Let me just show you something that Paul does that I think is interesting. Look at Philippians 1, verse 5. It says this, Because of your, your partnership, again, that word's fellowship, partnership in the gospel, fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Look at verse 6. It says, And I am sure of this, that he... Who, Who's that referring to? What's the antecedent of he? God. He who began a good work in you. Paul's referring to God. God's the one that began a good work. Now look at Philippians 2, verse 1. Just turn there real quick. Philippians 2, verse 1. It says this. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any uh, participation in the spirit. Guess, guess what word participation is in Greek? Koinonia. Fellowship. So it can be translated fellowship in the spirit. It's the same word. So in Philippians 1.5, we have fellowship in the gospel of God. In Philippians 2.1, we have fellowship in the spirit. Now turn to Philippians 3 verse 10. It says this, that that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Who's this? Who, who was raised from the dead? Jesus, right? And may share his sufferings. What word do you think share is in Greek? Koinonia. Fellowship. Fellowship in his sufferings. So this word is used three times in the book of Philippians. Fellowship in the gospel of God. Fellowship in the Holy Spirit. And fellowship in the suffering of Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen, our fellowship as Christians, as a church, is deep. Deep. Because we are fellowshipping in something. Again, James Boyce writes this. He, he calls this, this fellowship the, the privilege of sharing in the full nature of God. And if you're missing out on this because of a football game, a hobby, overtime at work, you have a, a shallow excuse for not getting involved in a church and a growth group and ABF? If you're more concerned about your personal time than serving Sunday mornings, Wednesday night, or sir, Thursday nights, I just want you to know you're missing out. You're missing out on the joy that's offered to you. The joy of true fellowship, the joy of, of fellowship in the gospel. 
the second point this morning, again, is Paul's joy in living in the, in the present. Joy found in the fellowship in the gospel. So in our passage this morning, again, we have two examples, two really practical ways of being joy-filled. First, and just so simply, just remember the best in people. Think of the best. Don't dwell on their faults. Let, let past offenses go. Get all bitterness out of your heart. Remember Andy saying growing up from the pulpit that bitterness is like pouring poison into a glass for your enemy and then you drink it. Get it out. Let it go. God is going to right every wrong. It's not, it's not your place. The second example Paul gives us is, again, another just so practical way of being joy-filled is simply get involved. Seek the fellowship in the gospel. Find, find a way to have a deeper relationship with people here at COBC. Serve. Share in the gospel. If you're struggling with being joy-filled, Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 33. I just love this. And, and this is uh, Craig's go-to verse in counseling. Simple. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You'll find joy. Next week, we're going to look at the third way, which is so important, and we see throughout all of the book of Philippians, and that's Paul's joyful confidence of the future. There's a lot of us that are just so worried about the future that you're robbing it of your joy. We need to stop watching the news and just have confidence. <laughs> Jesus is coming. That's good news. Let's pray. so blessed. I was just thinking as I was walking through the story of the prodigal son, that was us. Every one of us that was saved, we were the prodigal son who, who just squandered all these blessings that you had given us on selfish desires, and yet you still loved us. You forgave us. You, you threw a party in heaven and we turned, and our souls were saved. God, that was us. We were so blessed. And, and we have a, a glorious future when you come back. God, I pray that we are marked, each and every individual Christian that's a part of this church, we are marked with joy. God, help us to live in that joy. Help us to take thoughts captive. Help us to, to get all bitterness out of our heart, Lord. That, that is a work of the Spirit. It's something that we cannot do. We have to purposely work for it. It's you working in us. God, we pray for that. 